I'm going to back you up to verse 1 of chapter 2, which begins with four words, but as for you. Powerful words that the Apostle Paul, writing this letter to Titus, brings to our remembrance that Titus had been sent to this island of Crete. As we studied last week, and if you've had any chance to explore a little bit of the uh, specifics about Crete and that particular time, it was uh, a rough social crowd. That would be the best way to explain it. I, I won't try to put any comparisons. Maybe you in your mind can think of a variety of cities or small townships that it would be hard for a, a Christian leader to go in to and to look for uh, leaders in, uh, in this very rough society to follow Paul's command to appoint elders in every uh, gathering, every body of believers. They're called cities in Scripture that Paul and Titus had been to. They had been there a short time, established a work, a church, whether that was uh, 2, 4, 12, 15, 20, whatever, and then move on to the next area and, and proclaim the gospel and again establish a work. And we don't know exactly how many cities on this island, but there were uh, multiple. And so as we began the letter, you know, Paul says, I, I left you there to establish and appoint elders in every city. And Titus has this great privilege and yet difficult task of looking out amongst him into the body of, of believers in a given city and appointing leaders, elders. Paul had reminded him in the 16th verse of the previous chapter that there were those who professed to know God, but in works they deny him being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every work. But as for you, Titus, that's why that contradiction or contrast comes so clearly in. Speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. The Living Bible translates that first verse, speak up for right living that goes along with true Christianity. The New Living Translation says, promote the kind of living that reflects right teaching. In other words, the thought behind Paul's phrase to Titus is that this involves right living, not just right thinking. And there is no way to escape it. One commentator says, the Bible is a book that tells us how to live. It is the height of hypocrisy to say that we believe it's true if we ignore 
how it tells us to live our lives. The height of hypocrisy. So, man, woman, young person, here in this room, watching at home, if you consider yourself a professing believer and that the Bible is true, to not buckle your knee to its truths that it tells us to live by is hypocritical. Remember the Great Commission? Jesus said to his disciples, Go ye therefore into all the world, make disciples of all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them, sometimes we forget or leave this part out, which he said, and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have spoken and taught you. So yeah, proclaim the gospel. Watch new life take place as a man or a woman or a young person is born again into the kingdom. And then as discipleship takes place, there is a consequential living that is supposed to follow. And here I am, you know, declaring this truth here in the church this morning, the old phrase, preaching to the choir. But I was a choir member once. Oakland City Boys Choir, summer of sixth grade. And I know that not everybody in that choir had the same mind. So allow me to declare or preach to the choir and trust that the word of God will bring the application. As for you, Timothy, I'm sorry, Titus, speak the things that are proper for sound doctrine. And here's how I want you to begin, Titus. I want you to tell the older men that they're to be sober, verse 2, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love and patience. That's where I want you to start, Titus. Now, we can do two things with the phrase older men. We can ascribe that to older in age. Some of us in this room this morning go, that's me. Or we can also ascribe older in faith have been walking a bit longer in the faith than other men. And both would apply in that the, the senior man in and amongst amidst the body of Christ should reflect a maturity that echoes what Paul is saying here. Sober in mind would mean you'd have to be sober in body. There are several references to alcohol here, and we'll get to that. But sobriety in mind. Why the, why the multiple references? I'll give you a hint. It was a reflection of what took place in the society at large on the island of Crete. It was a party, and drinking was heavy. And you can't take five steps into our world today, in our community, or 
Um, you know, what's on television or in the magazines or in the media where so many people begin the day or their evening or something with a glass of whatever. Grocery stores dedicate entire sections to alcohol in our country. Maybe you drink, I don't know. But if you're a Christian and you want to or desire to or are even perhaps called to being in a place of leadership, you can't bypass these truths. Reverent, uh, that means suited for a sacred position, if you will. Temperate. or self-controlled, sound in faith. In other words, real clear on why you believe what you believe. Sound, the, uh, the language would include sound in love and sound in patience. Sound in faith, in love, and in patience. Able to live out the fact that God loves you so much that he sent his only begotten son to the cross to die for you. If you were the only individual on earth, and you're not, Christ still would have gone to the cross for you. And since he did do that, are we not responsible, those of us who are in faith, to recognize we should express the equality of love to our fellow human beings? And it requires patience to do so. So often we want to just like, yeah, but they and this and him and her. It's like, wait a minute. Was not God patient with you and me? Yes, he was and is and remains so. Because we're not done. We're in process. It is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So is, is he shaping in your life and heart? This morning, he's doing so because he's patient. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 13, speaking to men, Paul says that when I was a child... I spoke as a child, understood as a child, and thought as a child. He says, but when I became a man. Now, guys, listen to me for just five seconds, will you? The phrase man up has been borrowed from what truly is biblical Christianity for every man. To man up is to walk in the truths that God says you're to walk in. And if you're like me at all, you hit a hurdle and you go, oh, God, I am weak. I'm flawed. I'm frailed. There's nothing in me that's any good at all. Help, Christ, help. That's manning up. I think manhood for me... Today's my wife's birthday. I think 
manhood for me really began as I, when I married Sherry, I was like, I had no idea what manning up meant. And by the grace of God and her patience and being a father to my girls and, and my son, I've grown into manhood. It's a grow into thing. You know, just to flip a switch and now you're, you know, Mr. Man, let alone Mr. Godly Man. We grow into it, don't we, men? And as we grow into it, we, we see our faults. We see where we slipped and stumbled. And, and, and we see the grace and the hand of God picking us up and saying, no, 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 come, come, come. So be encouraged, but be exhorted as well to be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love and in patience. Now, he doesn't stop there, of course. Paul reminds Titus now to speak to the older women in verse 3. Likewise, if you're taking note, you can circle that word because it references the verse before. He's saying, in the same manner, the older women, that they be reverent in behavior. Now, we can also apply the same principle Older in age or older in faith. You, you know, you decide where you are in that. That they are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders. What's interesting, the original word there uh, is the same word that is used for devils. And one commentator brings out the point that when women gossip and slander, they're doing the devil's work. Not slanders. Here we come to alcohol again, not given to much wine. Why? Because there was a lot of slushing going on amongst the women in Crete. And teachers of good things. And you would say, well... What good things? Because I don't need to reiterate the, the point I made about alcohol being so uh, prevalent in our society today, prevalent in the lives of men and women. The teacher of good things means in verse 4 that they admonish the young women to love their husbands and to love their children. So here's where uh, an older saint, whether in age or in the, their walk with the Lord, is to admonish, gently encourage, help to uh, push along the younger, either in faith or in age, that they're, they're to love their husbands and their children. You know, uh, there's something that goes on today, both with men and women, husbands and wives, and that is the lack of bragging on your spouse. I love it when Sherry brags on me. It just makes me feel like I'm big. I've told the story before, but I'll tell it again because you know, we hadn't, I think we were dating, and which Okay, different story. Anyway, we were driving down the, the road, and we were in uh, an old pickup of mine that was a stick shift, 
you know, no, no uh, captain seats. Everything's captain seats these days. So, and there was no divider and everything. And she was over on the pasture side, and I was driving along. And I remember, like it was yesterday, when she decided to move over <laughs> and let me put my arm around her and drive with one. You know, you're not supposed to drive with one hand. X nay on the drive with one hand. But man, I just felt like a million bucks, like my cheerleader. Wives, you cannot over brag about your husband. Husbands, you cannot over brag about your wives. Instead, at times it starts to fall down to, well, he's this or she's that. What I'm reading there says no. Love their children. So many great parents in our fellowship here that, that encourage their children. And as we get to verse 5, then we, we of, course, of course come face to face with culture change. It's like he uses the word and women are be to be what? You read the word there? Discreet. Oh my goodness. Has discretion gone out the window in so much of our society today for women? And men, to be discreet. There's nothing attractive about a man or a woman that casts discretion aside. For the woman, he goes on, chaste. In other words, pure. Homemakers, good, obedient to their husbands. Now, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. And that's the point of all of this, is so that God's word, working in the heart of this wife, mother, woman, Christian, that the word of God won't be blaspheming. I did a little bit of a research. Again, back in the 60s, we had what was called the uh, initiation of the women's liberation movement, which carried on into the 80s. And today... You, you would have a lot of conjecture about, you know, a woman's place and, and the Bible is sexist and it, it elevates men higher than they need to be. Men and women are equal. Excuse me. This is not a sexist thing. This is a theist thing. It's God. God has an order for gender. Oh, my goodness. Yes, there's two. There's a man and a woman. And God has an order in which life and fruit in life and pleasure in life and blessing in life can flow from that order. The issue is from the very beginning, you go all the way back to the garden, is that there was a choice not to follow the order that God had prescribed. And it all comes back to that. Simply being willing to submit to the order, this order that God has prescribed for man, for woman, for Christian man, Christian woman. More specifically here. 
Because that's what Titus is dealing with. He isn't supposed to go into the unsaved city and try and, you know, put these things in order. He's to go into the body of Christ, which has the spirit of God working in the heart of the men and women to help and empower and to reveal that these things are to be in order. And this is that order. Likewise, in verse 6, as he's talked about older men, he says, Now the younger men exhort the younger men to be sober-minded also, and in all things showing yourself. Titus, you can't go in there and say, do as I say, but not as I do. Titus, I need you to go in there and show yourself in all things to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing integrity, the inference would be in reverence also and in incorruptibility of the clarity of the teaching of the New Testament truth. Now, what's interesting is this immediately, this kind of clear instruction in Scripture like raises the bar, right? It's like, whoa, okay. And as the bar gets raised, maybe you or I, and maybe it's just me, I'll speak for me, you know, in my heart I go, oh God, I don't, I don't, I don't know that I can meet that. In fact, I, I know I can't. I love this uh, true story. In 1952, in an effort to prevent clumsy and careless people from breaking items in his shop, in Miami Beach, a store owner posted a sign that read, if you break it, you buy it. You ever seen that? That, that originated in 1952, and it just kind of spun all over the country. You, you know, you break it, you buy it. Okay, very worldly concept, because ironically, a different sign was placed in a potter's shop not long after that said this, if you break it, we'll make it into something better. Jeremiah 18, 1 through 4, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Arise, go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. And then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the potter's hand. And so he made it again into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter. Are you marred? Is there an imperfection in the clay of your humanity and mine? You see, when that bar is high, it's like, yeah, but Lord. And at times we miss, and, and there's that imperfection. You picture a, a potter's wheel. We've shared this before, but the, the wet clay is spinning, right? And the potter knows how to take water and keep it moist so that it can be formed and shaped. And, and he often or she often uses 
her hands to apply pressure. As that pot is turning, the pressure is what shapes the thing. And then as it gets clear and almost done, if, if there was a, an imperfection in the clay that can't be taken out, the wheel stops, all that work, that clay is taken off the wheel and boom, thrown on a table and kneaded flat again until each little bump can be seen and then taken out of the clay and then it's rolled up into that ball again and boom, placed on that wheel and the wheel starts going around again and the potter throws the water and he takes his hand and starts to shape it again. And every difficult crisis, hardship, painful, blessing, joyful thing that happens in your life from the day, the moment you said yes to Christ is you being on that wheel and Christ shaping and forming you. And whoop, he sees a, something that you didn't know was there, but he knows it's something that can't stay, can't stay in that vessel in order for that vessel once it gets to heaven and off the wheel going, boom, down on the table and kneaded in. You're going, whoa, what's happening to me? Oh gosh, you know. You ever felt like that? And then there's that times when it's spinning, you're just going, oh man, this is beautiful what God is doing. You're going along, you know, Thousand miles an hour of blessing, and then boom, off. Back onto the table we go. Why? As Sherry reminded me recently, cute story about this little child whose mother quilted, and the child always was on the floor looking up at mom through the backside of the quilt. Mom was quilting, and and. The child, too young and too small, was only seeing the backside of the quilt. And the child would always say, Mom, what are you, what are you making? She would say, well, someday you'll, you'll see it, my child. Someday you'll see it. And the child grew and got to a place where the child could actually get up and sit on Mom's lap and look at the front side of the quilt. So, oh, Mom, that's beautiful. And sometimes we're down here trying to live this out, and it's like we're looking at the backside of the quilt, not quite sure what's going on. When in fact the Lord is making something very beautiful out of you and I. Very precious to him. As he says, and we're going to have to move along, but as we read it in our, con in our congregational reading when he said, in verse 13, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. Titus goes on to speak to the worker, in the worker bee in the, the small little church that he's trying to point elders and that He's giving instruction to those people that the bondservants in verse 9 are to be obedient. Oh, wait a minute. Can't skip 7 and 8. 
So the young men, sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works and doctrine, integrity, reverent incorruptibility. Verse 8, sound speech that cannot be condemned that the one who uh, is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. And so he makes it clear that your life should be able to be lived in such a way that others are not going to have something evil to say of you. And you might say, well, Pastor, how is that possible? You know, someone could call my faults like right now. They could point out a fault and you could say, yes, here's the deal. If you find fault in me, I'm so glad you do because I ain't what I used to be. And I ain't what I want to be, but I'm on my way to the one who will make me be what he wants me to be. Can we say amen? Amen. So maybe that's true. I know it's true of me. Maybe it's true of you. I ain't what a terrible English. Where's our English teacher? I'm not what I want to be, but I'm not what I used to be. But I'm on my way to the one who's making me to be what he wants me to be. And that they can't speak evil of. Exhort the workers, verse 9, to be obedient to their masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back. Notice that in verse 9. Not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Exhort those workers that... As a Christian in in our community, a Christian should be the best employee that an employer has. Hands down. And boy, was that a hard lesson to learn as I cut meat for Lucky Stores 13 years. And I came into meat cutting as a young Christian and, and was learning what it meant to be a Christian in the working world. And so often, having come out of an extremely hard drug-induced background, not really having a work ethic of any sort, I knew how to cut corners well. I knew how to cut corners silently. I knew how to cut corners. And it all came to a head one day. I wouldn't clean this drain. You guys heard this story. You had to clean the trap. You had to get the ugly fat out of the trap, out of the floor, throw it in the garbage. You were supposed to do it every night. And I'd skip a night here, skip a night there. Boss would say, hey, Finney, you didn't clean the trap last night. You got to clean it tonight. Okay, okay. And this would go on for weeks and weeks and weeks, you know. One day I walked to work. Mr. Christian, I'm Mr. Christian. Walk into the cutting room, and there's my head meat cutter, second man, and... A, an apprentice who had less cutting time than me, all standing there, Finney, in the cooler. Oh, man, when you get called into the cooler, it's a private conversation. And as into the cooler I go, I get informed, you're not doing your job. And because you aren't doing your job, maybe if you work enough nights, you'll learn 
you're supposed to do your job. And so indefinitely, my schedule was changed, and I was put on nights to learn to clean that trap. In other words, do what you're told. Very humiliating lesson for me. Not that anyone here else has to learn that lesson. I hope not. But if you're employed, you should be a great employee if you are a Christian. And you say, how is any of this possible? Verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation to all men that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. How is any of this possible? By grace, grace alone. It's God's grace who brings us into the relationship that we have by faith. It's God's grace that keeps us in that relationship. It's God's grace that continues to forgive us throughout the duration of our life here in that relationship. And it is by his grace we are who we are in this present age. And that's why we come to the table. It's to remember that we are who we are not because we're special or we're uniquely important to you know, the infinite work of a holy God, which we could discuss that another time, but we come to the table because of grace. We are important to him, so much so that he took upon himself the penalty of our sin, shed his blood at Calvary, and said, if you'll believe, I offer you eternal salvation with my Father. And along with that faith, he teaches us that we are to deny ungodliness, worldly lusts, and that we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age. What would motivate you or I to, to live righteously, soberly, godly in this present age if not be for the fact that he says we're to look? Where's our attention? Is our attention here? Is it in the past? Or is it in the blessed hope and great appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Looking for that, almost wanted to land on that this morning. What are you looking for in life? What am I looking for in life? Where is our greatest attention? Is it in relationship? Is it in career? Is it in amassing that, that future? Is it where is it? That's the question. Ponder that question this week. What are you looking for in life? Because the way I read this is that if 
these things are actually going to be so in our lives as a body of believers here in this little town of Valley Springs, in the county of Calaveras, and the communities in which we live, that we deny ungodliness, that we deny worldly lusts, that we live soberly and righteously and we live godly in this present age, there can be only one way to accomplish that. It's, it's by placing my attention and my vision for looking for, I'm looking for his coming. That means I better remain ready. I know he's coming. There's conjecture about the Russia-Ukraine conflict amongst Bible people all over and whether or not it could, you know, translate into the beginning of a third world war or a, a one world economy and, and the, the reconfiguration of the Europe scene and all of that. Who knows? I don't know. I'm not a... I'm not an end times specialist at all or even a prophetic, uh, biblical prophetic engineer, but, you know, certainly it is shaking wars and rumors of wars. And so he reminds us through his letter to Titus, God reminds us that how this all came to be is that our great God and Savior, who we're to look for, gave himself. He gave himself for us. Verse 14. That he might redeem us from every lawless deed. Buy us back from the things that we have done that have broken his law. And in that repurchasing that he through the washing of the water of the word and the cleansing of our sin by his blood purifies us in the eyes of God, maybe not in the eyes of other men, certainly not in the eyes of the world. They're always looking for the imperfection in Christians and the Christian faith. But in the eyes of God, we're in this, we're in this purification process because Jesus is purifying for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. He didn't save me for me. He didn't save you for you. He saved us for himself. Purifying us as his own special people, zealous, excited about every good work, both the work inwardly and the works we can do outwardly. Titus, just be sure and speak these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority and don't let anyone despise you. Saints, beloved, each one of us could take these truths and share them with other believers and not let anyone despise you look down upon you, hold you lower if indeed we are aspiring to live this out ourselves.
And so the chalkboard becomes wiped clean again by the blood of Christ. And we just come to the table and we say, Lord, here I am. Ready to have you wash me, cleanse me again. And set me apart for you. Will you join me in a word of prayer and we'll invite the men to come forward. Lord, what I'm reminded of this morning in all of those great verses is that you gave yourself for us. You looked into eternity in the future and you saw each one of us, the innumerable sea of humanity that would be purchased back for you, yourself. And that we are a part of that this morning, Lord, is overwhelming. It humbles us. It brings us the greatest joy. Because this is a celebration. We're to remember what you did for us that we might be yours. So prepare our hearts, Lord. Have your way as we worship and as we partake today. In Jesus' name, amen.